0: exposition of the book of Timothy. Remember Paul is the author of the book under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he's writing to Timothy who's a young timid man, uh, a a child of God who's left with the task of trying to get the church in uh, Ephesus where he was there at the time to be organized to be faithful, to be a good testimony. So our brother last week spoke to us about the law And how the law could be used wrongly by some, which Timothy had the task of trying to correct the error of those that were abusing the word of God, taking the law of God in a wrong direction. And Paul now begins to explain what it takes to get right with God. And we praise the Lord for our brother Sean's testimony and the way in which God works in the 21st century in the lives of people like him and you and I. And like Paul, we're going to read about right now, as we heard already of his transformation that occurred on the road to Damascus, and now these are his own words describing himself in the mercy that God showed to him. So beginning at verse number 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, I thank him, that's the Lord Jesus, who had given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he judged me faithful, or trustworthy that is, appointing me to his service or to his ministry. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. Like Sean, like you and I, those who were or were to believe in him for eternal life. Now here's a doxological outburst. This uh, volcanic, you could say, ecstatic excitement that Paul displays in finalizing his conversion testimony. And he says, now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. The law. Uh, You know, recently our sisters, some of them have been gathering on Thursday evenings in studying the book of Exodus. Those messages and those studies are online. I'd encourage you to go to them and listen to them, something that I do. And I've been blessed by them, and I w- I would think the same would be your case. So uh, we have a wonderful teacher in our church. She's a sister, and uh, we might be giving her a a present today. So you have to come up here. Come up here. Her name is Jillian. Clodagh, is your husband with you today? Okay. We might. Well, on the other hand, okay. So. Um, Come up here, sister. He's, he's need to pray up a lot more than we do. <laughs> yeah. So um, like how <laughs> far did you go in the book of Exodus? We went up to chapter 18 this semester. 18. Hmm. Okay. I thought you went up to 20, but I was wrong. So here's a test for our Exodus scholar. Uh, can you put it? – don't turn around. Uh, can you put this uh, next uh, uh, slide up on the screen for everybody fail. to see? I'm going to fail the test. Okay. So um, – Jillian's one of our top sister scholars in the church, so um, just, in, you know, in, I'm sure she's ahead for the next session of the book of Exodus, the next semester will begin, what, in February? February 29th. February 29th, there's your advertisement, so, uh, so she'll be starting chapter 19, and I know she knows all about chapter 19, and especially chapter 20, so the test for our sister here is she's going to tell you the Ten Commandments, and your children can help you if you want, you don't have to quote it exactly, but can you give... Hey, wait. This is like the worst... Oh, right. my God. So I ha- might have to restrain her. I really want to run away from this right okay. now. Okay. Uh, you can, can, can help uh, Lincoln and uh, uh, Hudson if you want. They're reading books in the back. <laughs> All right. What's the first one? You shall have the other God before me. Very good. Amen to that one. Next. I'm honestly, Gary, not going to get them. Yeah, they don't, right don't have now. to be in oil. I feel, I feel like I'm literally going to puke right now. Uh. <laughs> help, her out, Denise, what's the second one? Have no. Yes. Other? Okay. The uh, one that the Catholic Church likes. Okay, to should on. have no other idols before <laughs> me. Okay, the next one. I, I'm honestly, Gary. I, I don't. All right, we're going to help you, sister. Don't worry. You shall have no other name. The Lord. Sorry. No, they're printed here in front of me. (laughs) I should have just looked down. All right, at least read read them to us. I have to preach a sermon. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet Amen. Here's your gift. (laughs) You didn't do any worse than I would have, so you're fine. But the book of Exodus, what a great book. You know, um, the first five books of the Old Testament are known as the Torah. That's the law. And for a Jew, the Torah was supreme. the obligation to it and keeping of it was vital. And you could say the Ten Commandments were sort of the heart of the law. And uh, so Paul in the book of Timothy here, uh, there's a concern over those that were taking the law, as our brother mentioned last week, and abusing it and wrongly applying it and making that as if it was the supreme thing in the life of a believer. That's why I think Paul breaks in in the following verses to talk about the amazing grace of God in the gospel, because the last verse in verse 11 of 1 Timothy 1, he says, According to the glorious gospel of our blessed God. Let me get the exact wording here in Timothy, verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see, the law is not what interprets the gospel. It's the gospel that interprets the law. Have you ever met somebody that you said to yourself, boy, he or she would make a wonderful Christian? Have you ever come across people like that and say, boy, I wish he would be saved or he would be saved? What a wonderful Christian they would make, right? Or on the other hand, have you ever met somebody that you thought, oh boy, that person's never going to be saved. That person is just so far out there so anti-Christian, so anti-Christ, so anti-Bible, so anti-God, just just a vile, uh, unbelieving, hostile individual. Well, you're being introduced to one, that is the Apostle Paul. He would be the least likely candidate to be saved. This is good for us to know, and that's why he goes on to say that he's become a model, he's an example Of the patience of Christ for those who in the future would believe in him. So I just want to encourage you. You might have a family member, a friend, a neighbor who you think in your heart that person will never be saved. They're too far out there. I want to encourage you to not give up. Keep praying for your mother, your brother, your sister, your children. Don't give up. God is able, and Paul we have as a, an example, just like in the death, deathbed situations. Do you ever say, oh, I, I don't want to give them the gospel. They never believe the gospel anyway. No, you always have that hope, like the thief on the cross in the 11th hour turned to the Lord and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the amazing response was, today you will be with me in paradise. I remember when I was doing open-air preaching downtown in Worcester. There was a fellow that was just vile. He was nasty. Every time it seemed like he came around just to harass me. In the language that he used, the blasphemous words. It was constant and persistent, and it really got my ire up. I believe it was he at one point actually took Bible, a Bible that I, we, I was giving away, Bibles, and lit it on fire in front of me to to show his animosity towards the gospel. Well, a few years later, that same individual, his name was Joe, came downtown and says, Gary, I want to apologize to you for the many times that I harassed you and harangued you and how I mocked God. I want you to know that the Lord Jesus saved me. I goes, hallelujah. He was telling me he's having Bible studies in his home right off of Belmont Street. I said, this is amazing grace, brother. Praise the Lord. He does save wretches like you and me. And God can do it. And he certainly, as it were, he rolls up his sleeve and he can save the vilest of sinners. As the hymn writer said, he breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Well, in our text this morning, we have Paul right at the outset giving his gratitude in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength. Our strength as believers is not in ourselves. In me, Paul says, dwells no good thing. Paul says that the communication of your faith may become effectual through the working of every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. He says, where is he getting his strength? In Christ. We all should know that verse in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him, that is Christ, who strengthens me. That's where our strength lies. Do you have that strength? Are you being strengthened? Paul is one who can testify to the strength that he received from now this is interesting Christ Jesus our Lord for Paul to call Jesus Lord that is a miraculous transformation it's a miraculous transformation even for you and I to call Jesus Lord it tells us in 1 Corinthians 12:2 no one can say that Jesus is the Lord apart from the Holy Spirit when God was working in my life and my college years I kind of went along with the Jesus revolution movement that was taking place from the west coast that swept across the country I bought myself some patches my girlfriend now my wife was pasting them on, uh, uh, sewing them on my uh, dungaree coat and shirt and everything I had and there was one patch that I bought I bought a bunch of them that said Jesus is my Lord and for some reason that could not be on my coat. I did not feel like I lived up to that. And I remember uh, on, 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 on route to class one day from the dormitory, I forgot a pen. So I had to hurry back to the dormitory and I opened up the drawer and I saw the words, Jesus is my Lord. And I just, again, I felt such conviction that I could not say that. But then in due time, the Lord did open my heart. And gave me faith and trust in Christ. And I could truly, like the scripture says, no one can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. And today and since then, I've been able, like you too, be able to say that Jesus is Lord. To say that Jesus is Lord is a dynamic proclamation. That word Lord means King of Kings. He's the Prince. He's the Almighty. He's the Supreme One. He's the one to whom every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that He's Lord to the glory of God the Father. So praise the Lord that He and you and I as believers in Christ are able to say Christ Jesus, our Lord, not their Lord, not His Lord, not your Lord, but my Lord, our Lord, because He judged me faithful. Or trustworthy. Paul wasn't faithful prior to his conversion that qualified him to be saved. My wife, who used to be my girlfriend when I first got saved, I wanted to introduce her to the gospel. And her first reaction was, I don't know enough. I don't know the Bible that well. I've never really gone much to church at all. She felt as if she had to qualify herself in order to become a genuine candidate that God could worthily save. And that's the natural tendency, isn't it? We think the better we get, the more likely that God's going to come down and rescue us and save us. That's not the case. He, the Bible says the arm of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. God's arm can reach into the deepest pit of the deepest of sinners and can bring them up out of that horrible pit. So that we can be praising the Lord and calling Jesus our Lord. And then being faithful once we are saved. And Paul says that God appointed him to this ministry because God enabled him to become faithful. Trustworthy. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, it's required of stewards that a man be faithful. Faithful. What is a steward? Someone who's given the responsibility to carry out a duty. And Paul said it's required. And it should be, in a a sense, applicable to every Christian. Do you realize what God has deposited to you? You're a testimony in the police department. You're a testimony in the hospital. You're a testimony in the school system that you may work in. Or wherever, wherever it is, Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You know, we think of Christmas, a lot of people do, especially those that are just in Christendom and not in Christ. They see Christmas as all about the baby in the manger. But really there's no Christmas unless Christ is in the heart of individual people. He lives and dwells in us. That's the dwelling place of Christ. It's in the heart of mankind, of people who repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the real Christmas that I think we need to emphasize. It's not so much the outward viewing of Christ, but the inward knowledge of Jesus by trusting Him as your Savior and receiving Him as the Lord of your life. Now, Paul in verse 13 says, Though formerly I was a, what? A blasphemer. I was a... Persecutor in an insolent opponent. You don't get any worse than that. He was a blasphemer. What was he blaspheming? Jesus of Nazareth. He hated the name of Jesus of Nazareth and anyone that named his name as a follower, he was going to persecute them. He threatened them. He went after them with full force. He even got Paperwork from the high priest that gave him the authorization to be able to go to the synagogues and to present to the associates of the high priest and of Judaism legal papers, like a warrant, you could say. He had warrants for the arrest of believers, especially Jewish believers in Jesus Christ to, to, um, apprehend them, to bring them back to Jerusalem and have them put to death And he says, and I voted in favor of their being put to death. So in essence, we could say Paul was a murderer of God's people, of Christians. He was the Hamas of his day against the people of God. He was brutal. He hated the name of Jesus. And he persecuted any who called upon him. And he was an insolent. It says in one translation, in an overbearing individual. He's somebody that you probably wouldn't want to hang out with. He just didn't have the charisma, the personality, the friendliness. He wasn't likable. And yet, here he describes himself in this fashion. He was insolent opponent. And here he's carrying the warrants for the arrest of Christians. Where did he get the authorization from the ironic High Priest? He's carrying the paperwork. He's traveling as far as Damascus, which would be maybe like 60 or so miles. It says he hounded them to distant places. He was all out. He had his posse ready and he was going after the Messianic ones, the Jewish Christian people who are following Christ. But en route, he meets the not the Aaronic high priest from which he came, but he met the Melchizedek great high priest on his way to Damascus. When the light that shined from above, above the brightness of the new day sun, that knocked him to the ground, the voice that he heard, and it was the voice of the one that said, "Saul, Saul." Notice he called him, not Paul, Paul, but Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? Why are you persecuting me? And then he said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. I'm your number one enemy. But I'm now your great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You've been sent by the ironic high priest to go to capture Christians and persecute them and put them to death. I'm now the Melchizedek priest who's going to turn you from being what you wanted to be. You were going to be uh, a uh, an enemy of God's people. Now I'm going to make you an emissary for God's people. You're going to be one that's going to call people into the kingdom. The one who was a, a Jesus hater is now a Jesus lover. The one that... Uh, Was the foremost sinner or the chiefest sinner is now the chief man among the brethren. He's the foremost apostle. What a transformation from what he was to what he has now become. He was blinded. There were scales on his eyes for three days. I've been pondering that. Why did Paul get scales or Saul have scales on his eyes blinded for three days? I can't quite grasp that. I wonder. Have you ever thought about that? Why did Paul become blinded? Maybe because the Lord wanted for the very next moment his eyes would be opened, he would be in the presence of a child of God. He would be with Ananias when Ananias would come and lay hands upon him and say, Brother Saul, arise and be baptized. He was a believer. He had to be a believer to be baptized because he's called by Ananias who was very frightful of him, didn't want to go. He was given directions that you would find him on the street called Straight and that he would be praying. And so he goes in and he finds this Saul who was the enemy of God's people that he knew full well and now he has to go in and he's, ha- he's saying rightfully, Brother Saul. This is not just a countryman kind of a kinship. I believe this is talking about relational matters. That this is my brother in the Lord. Brother Saul, arise and be baptized. The one who was the chief of sinners becomes the chiefest man among the brethren. And he says, I received mercy. But I received mercy. I was at a Boston hotel a few years ago for some reason. My daughter had something going on and we had to stay at the hotel. I remember checking in the desk and there was a girl there, and, um, you are know, always looking for opportunities to say something to somebody, right, about the Lord? And as she's shuffling papers around, her hand turned over, the palm was showing up, and right on her inner arm here said the words, but God. Oh, I said, oh, I know, See, this has got to be a sister. But God, who is rich in mercy, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But God. Hear Paul saying, but God. And in your life, have you had a but God? When God butts into your life, as it were, and takes charge, and then begins to reign in your soul, and you say, wow, the Lord had mercy upon me, a hell-deserving Broad road passenger going down the road to destruction. And the Lord had mercy on me. But God. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. You know, in the Old Testament, there were no offerings for sins that were done intelligently, purposefully. Those were sins that were called sins, The King James says, done with a high hand. But there were offerings provided for sins that were done in ignorance. And as ferocious as Paul was against God's people and against the gospel, the Lord nevertheless charges him in the category of a state of ignorance. Think of the one who hung on the cross, who said, Father, forgive them for what? They know not what they do. I didn't realize how bad of a sinner I was when I was in my sins. As a matter of fact, we all felt comfortable in our pre-converted days until, until a but God began to work in your life. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you have a but God in your life? Have you come to a point where it's a but God, where He's now beginning to work in your soul, and you're beginning to see a light that you never saw before, and you're beginning to realize the darkness that you're in, that sin is not pleasurable, and living the ways of the world are not bringing you tranquility and serenity and peace? Verse 14 And he says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. The grace of our Lord overflowed. It just didn't flow. It overflowed towards him. Grace that is greater than all our sin. It overflowed. God has so much grace that there's no sin that his grace cannot reach. And for that, Sinner like a Paul. It would take an overflowing amount of grace to bring him to faith in Christ. He said, it overflowed me. It tells us he his own testimony elsewhere is there's about five or six places in the New Testament, three in the book of Acts, Philippians chapter three, Galatians chapter one, Titus chapter three. We could use that because he says, For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diver lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He's saying we and right after that he says, But The kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. There again is another but. But then the kindness and love of God. That's what's put in you. We ourselves were sometimes, he says, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God. What a transformation from hate and hateful to love and kindness. That's what's generated in the soul of a believer. You're a child of love. You have kindness that's built into you by the Holy Spirit that's now inserted, if you will, into your new life. This is the package deal that we get with the experience of knowing Christ is our Lord and Savior. Now verse 15 is a sweeping statement. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Again, he says, of whom I am the chiefest, the foremost, the number one enemy. You might say, oh, I'm the chiefest of sinners. That sounds good, and you might be a horrible sinner or have been a horrible sinner. But there's no one that exceeded the degree of sin as Paul does. Because he says it here under inspiration with the Holy Spirit informing us that he was the worst of the worst of sinners. He was the Hamas of the Hamas. He was the terrorist who now becomes the evangelist. Give me a break. How does that happen? But God, it's a miracle of what we were and what we are today. He brought us up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay, set our feet upon a rock, established our going, put a new song in our mouth, even praise to our God. I still am amazed that I can be in the pulpit here preaching to you when I was a, such a guilty, vile sinner and yet, but God took place in my life. And any one of us here that steps in the pulpit or any one of us even that talks about Christ, we have to say amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. The chiefest of sinners, Oh, Paul, owns that category. He says he was the least of the apostles. He says he was the least of the saints in another location, And then he says in Ephesians, though I am nothing. Talking about having no pride, there's an example. The one that was so full of pride is now so emptied of pride because he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have think you have something to boast about, you are fooled. This is all about God. You see, the false teachers in Ephesus were teaching the law. Do this, do this, do this, and you'll live. No, no, the gospel corrects that and says, Live, and then do this. You've got to have life from God to be a commandment keeper. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's not keep my commandments and I'll love you, but rather the other way around. Love God, and then you can live. Not live to love God as if you have the capacity, it takes the miracle of the new birth to create that kind of ambition and desire to serve the Lord. Verse 16, but I receive mercy. There's that but again. The second time, verse 13 says, but I receive mercy. Again, he receives it, but I receive mercy. He is a supreme example For this reason, why did God have mercy? For this reason, that in me, that is Saul of Tarsus, the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ, that is the foremost, Jesus Christ. In, In other words, above all others, here is a prime example that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were, that is in the future, to believe in him for eternal life. He is the example as one who was the worst of sinners that's saved by the grace of God, but he's an example for the patience of Christ. Sometimes we wonder, I do all the time, how God can be so tolerant towards what's taking place in the world and around us and in the lives of individual people as well. But God, instead of taking certain people out of the world which we think sometimes people live in so bad that they don't have a right to live. That this world should not have an individual like that. Saul was one like that who had no rights to be living in the world. He was a vile man. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent man, but God had mercy upon him. I received mercy. God displayed his patience, Christ's patience towards me. I wonder how long Paul had been on the rampage going after Christians. How long was he at it? For years? Several years? Likely? Three, four years maybe? He seemed to be successful. Remember when we have the reference of the first martyr in the Bible, Stephen, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, was engaged, was enrolled, as it were, in the Sanhedrin to some degree. And when the time came... Because they believed that Stephen was blaspheming. Because he said that Jesus, I see Jesus at the right hand of God. That was a blasphemous statement for Sadducees on the Sanhedrin to hear that Jesus has risen from the dead, number one. And number two, that he's seated at the right hand of God. Next to the Ancient of Days and they've been given the kingdom to have dominion. This caused a stir of fury in the ears of the Sanhedrin. And then they dragged him out of the city, and they took up stones to stone him. And the ones that were doing the stoning, like I did, I had to take my coat off. They took their coat off and laid them at the feet of Saul. And Saul gladly collected their robes and set them there as he was supportive of what was transpiring. When Jesus meets him, he said, Saul, why are you kicking against the golds? You know what a goat is? A goat is an instrument that's used, for instance, in a circus. That the circus leaders would would probe the, the big elephants and get them to move or the lion. And it would, it would cause an irritation. So that to get away from the probing, they would move away from it and go in the direction that they were being probed to go. Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goats? You know, the natural reaction against... God is to kick against him. I don't want to bow my knee to the Lord. I don't want to say, Jesus, take my life over. I can take care of myself. We always hear that, I'm good, I'm good. You're not good. You need Christ. You don't realize how destitute you are without him. But people delude themselves in thinking that they're okay and life is good and things are going fine. There's no room for Christ. No room for them, for him and their in, if you will. Room for pleasure, room for Jesus, but for Christ the crucified, not a place that he can enter in the heart for which he died. That's the attitude that people have about the Lord Jesus. What an example. And here Paul has to conclude this section with an outburst, an outburst of praise. This is what you would call a doxology galore. He is extremely excited in wanting to give glory honor and praise to the king of the ages who's immortal invisible the only God be honor and glory forever and ever amen how thankful are you for what God has done for you you know when you get on your knees at night or day, whatever you pray number one praise him thank you God you are almighty you are perfect you are worthy you are majestic you are glorious and we give him the glory and the honor and praise that is due to his name. In Paul, as he hearkens back and reviews his own conversion, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. But God had mercy on me. No wonder he wants to say, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Do you have that kind of desire in your heart? Do you realize, Sean, what you've been saved out of? Do you realize what you're saved out of, Richard? Do you realize what you've been saved from? Do you want to give praise to him? You should. Let's mock our past and remember the but God that came into our life. Do you ever ask yourself, where would I be today if it wasn't for the Lord? Where would your life be heading right now? Paul was one who breathed out. Murderous threats against God. He persecuted the followers of the, of the way, of the way. That's what they were called. Those Jesus followers were called the way people. He was persecuting them, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. He says, I was convinced that I ought to do everything that I could possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I hunted them down to foreign cities. Acts 26. You can read that verses 3 to 11. Also Acts 22 verses 3 to 5. In Acts chapter 9 verse 1, he says, it says he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. What an example we have. The hymn writer said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. A preacher called me up last night and said, um, he knows Wally very well. He said, did Wally get saved before he got sober or did he get sober before he was saved? And I said, the fact was that, yes, he was, got to a point in his life that he needed help with alcohol. He contacted a friend who invited him to AA meetings. And through the AA organization and that's, that 12-step program, he got sober. But while being in that environment, someone invited him to go to church. Just getting sober is not enough. Just getting clean on the outside is not good enough. That's not going to get you right to heaven. Praise God the Spirit moved and worked in him. And he says, can you give me an example? He was at a certain point in his sermon where he was looking for an example of someone that was uh, enslaved to sin and then radically transformed. He's preaching out of Romans chapter 6. And a few minutes after we hung up, I said, I have, I have one, the demoniac man. It says that he was such that no one would even want to go near him. He was totally out of control. He was naked and he was ferocious. But Jesus walked right up to him. No problem. There's no one out of his reach. There's no one so bad that he's fearful of. He's more competent. The king of terror has to bow the knee to the king of kings. He goes right into the demoniac's homeland, if you will, in the caves. And you know, when he met the demoniac and he cast out the demons, you know what it says about that man that was such? It says he was became immediately clothed. He was sitting and he was in his right mind. Just the opposite of what he was before. He was enslaved to sin and to demons and the king of kings. The Lord of the ages had come. That amazing grace reached him. Now granted, you might not be a Saul, you might not be the demoniac, you might not be the vilest of sinners, or chief of sinners, or a chief sinner, but you're still a sinner, and you're as much as need of a Savior as, as Paul was, as a demoniac was, as Zacchaeus was. We could go right through the Bible and say, are you in those categories? Yes, you are. if you're not saved, you need to be saved. You need a conversion experience. You might not be on the road to Damascus. You might not be a blasphemer and a hater of God, etc. But you're still at enmity, the Bible says. You who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death. God and sinners reconciled. We sing that Christmas carol, hallelujah. God reconciles sinners and sinners only. This is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of the blessed God. We thank you, Lord, that we're believing in you, Lord, because of the grace that worked in us and brought us to saving faith. Oh, Lord, we want to sing a hallelujahs to you. We want to praise you, Lord, for this amazing grace that saved us. And Lord, I want to lift up to you, Lord, anyone in this room who does not know Jesus as their Savior. Lord, might you bow their hearts. Give them faith and trust. Humble them, Lord, before you. May your Holy Spirit work in their inward parts and show them that they need you, Lord, right today, now. The real Christmas is when Christ is born on the inside of the life of a soul. So, Father, we ask that it would please you to open their eyes, give them faith to understand the good news that Jesus is a Savior, a Savior for them, Lord. Give them repentance. May someone, Lord, today, put their faith right now in you, Jesus Christ, and say, Lord, I am thine, O Lord. I surrender my life to you. I trust you, Lord, as my personal Savior. Accept that you died as a guilty sinner for me the unworthy one. You died, Lord, with my guilt upon you so that I could take your righteousness and have your wondrous salvation. Lord, have mercy, we pray, as we give you glory and honor in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please rise with us, all ye faithful. Since we're only doing three songs,